Uh, my name is Rick. It's really good to be um, among us today. Uh, I'm with you, and we're going to be thinking about Psalm 23. Um, Ross teed me up perfectly. Yes, we're thinking about one verse, um, and uh, I, I, it's not going to be too long, I don't think. Uh, it's not going to be long. I also don't have loads of jokes written, which I was having an existential crisis over there about, and I was thinking, oh my goodness, this isn't uh, funny enough or anything like that. And so that's why I feel I'm trying to do stand-up now for some weird reason. So Psalm 23, why don't you open up, um, if you have it, or it'll be on the screen. I'm going to read four verses from it, um, just to help set what we're thinking about in context. Psalm 23. The Lord, uh, familiar words, but it's good for us to uh, come among these again today. And uh, maybe just to uh, continue to reflect and think about these as a church over these few weeks. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Um, a few years ago, I was involved with a group of young people in, in church, and we conducted a survey with them. And there was about uh, around about 150 teenagers who um, filled out that survey or took that survey. Um, as we kind of looked at some of the results or the things that they said, um, something has struck. Something struck. A, a real chord with me. 72% of the, the people who filled out the survey described themselves as Christians. That's not a huge surprise. All of them were part of youth programs within a church. But when we asked the question to this group of young people about the big issues in their lives, they didn't point to relationships or alcohol or peer pressure, as maybe some of us might assume. But instead, the three biggest issues coming to the fore of that survey were worry, depression, and pressures at school. In fact, over half of them in that survey mentioned either anxiety, worry, or depression specifically. And for me, as we looked at that res- those results, it, was, it just felt like it was too many, far too many. And of course, we know that it's not just among uh, young people or teenagers that those are issues. There's a study done by the Northern Ireland Department of Health um, in the Um, I was going to say recently, not that recently, because I don't know if there is a Department of Health, but uh, of over 3,500 people um, took part in that survey, and it showed that 1 in 10 people um, have or currently self-harm. There's numerous studies, of course, and stats, and we could pull up graphs and all sorts of things to point to how this generation suffer from an anxiety at a much higher rate, it seems, than previous generations. But to be honest, I don't think we need studies or stats. We can see it with our own eyes, can't we? This is an anxious generation. I don't know whether it's because for many there's a generation who grew up post 9-11, and so terrorism is part of people's landscape. It's a natural thing. But this is, this is a generation where FOMO is actually a thing. <laughs> and I can't even is a mantra that people say. It's a generation where personal body satisfaction is low, yet Love Island bodies are celebrated. It's a generation where we have so much choice and everything at our disposal, but we stress under the weight of having to make decisions. Social media causes us to paint the picture that everyone else is having more fun than I am. 
as I look th- through the photo feed on Instagram. Or it has me checking how many likes my latest selfie has. I don't really do selfies, by the way, but it has me checking how many likes my latest post has in the same anxious way that we check how many pounds we have in the bank. Lack of sleep can be a factor as well, maybe caused by watching a few too many episodes of the latest series on Netflix. And with huge market of opportunities available to us, there's more choice in our lives than ever before. Choice is almost taken for granted as it's a good thing. And there's an assumption that if we have lots of choice, then that's good no matter what those choices actually are. As long as you can choose, then that's good. But perhaps not. I recently read an article about the culture of Netflix in our generation. Yeah, it's really as interesting as it sounds. But one of the things that it says is this quote. It says, when everything is at our disposal, on our timeline, and to our liking, we'll naturally experience stress under the weight of consumerist freedom and FOMO. Will we make the wrong choice? Of the 15 shows your friends have talked about, which one should you watch? These questions can actually be debilitating, adding to existing anxiety when we already feel, when we feel in a world of choice overload. I find that fascinating. In fact, I find the whole article fascinating because it was talking about how so much choice can actually paralyze us, where choice creates anxiety among us and anxiety eventually causes apathy. It's where the fear of getting it wrong actually means it's easier to just do nothing. A crippling fear of failure means that we can actually see doing nothing as the best option. And so in the midst of this culture of choice overload or people comparison and crippling anxiety, we need some sort of an outside source. An outside source to help us navigate our full workloads, our demanding relationships and our full lives. And I'm glad to say the good news coming okay the good news is that psalm 23 for us paints a picture of an outside source and it's not just the outside source that is painted the outside source of a green pasture or a refreshing quiet waters the outside source isn't a product a plan and it's not even a place the outside source is a person and the person is the shepherd The shepherd God who doesn't want to just send us to these places, but the shepherd God who actually wants to lead us to these places and be with us in them. That's the picture that's painted here. The picture is a shepherd who's leading his people towards what they need, leading his sheep towards the things that they need. And that's a picture that we get of our God who doesn't just say, go and do that but instead brings us with him to the places that he's already been. And so what I think, you know, this, um, this amazing verse, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. We're going to focus on this particular part of the psalm today. And I think these words are primarily about recreation, God recreating us. I think they're about presence and I think they're about comfort. And so let's think about the first one of those words, okay? This psalm paints for us a picture of a God of recreation and not just rest. You know, if I'm honest, I think so often I've viewed rest as just, uh, you know, being, I've been busy for a while, I've been working hard, I've been slammed, and rest for me is the sofa, 
the TV remote and a Domino's pizza. Okay, that, that's what I think about when I think of rest often. I think, how can I escape? How can I escape what I've been doing, stop what I've been doing, and just, you know, veg out in the sofa? And I think, for, if we're honest, and maybe there was a couple of sniggers, that's about it, um, but there was a couple of nodding heads there that agreed that almost, yeah, I recognize that picture of rest, but you know what? Not just because Domino's wasn't around whenever David was writing this psalm, but I don't think that's the picture we get in this psalm. I don't think it's just about working hard and then vegging out on the couch. And believe me, while that's good to do now and again, maybe even tonight, and it could be described as rest, it's not actually recreation. It doesn't recreate us. It doesn't, I don't know about you, but for me, the TV remote and the sofa and the dominoes, while it's good to chill out, it doesn't really restore my soul that much. So how can we get this picture of a God who wants us to lie down in green pastures and lead us beside quiet waters. For me, we have a, for me, I think we, what I want to think about today is how we have a God who goes above and beyond. He doesn't want us to just rest. He wants to recreate us. He is the God of the immeasurably more, the God who goes beyond what we need. And so he doesn't want us to just cease work and stop to lie down and pause. He wants to lead us to places that will restore us and recreate us. The message puts it like this. God, my shepherd, I don't need a thing. You have bedded me down in lush meadows. You find me quiet pools to drink on. True to your word, you let me catch my breath and send me in the right direction. Recreation is stronger than rest. We have a God who wants to restore us. He wants, the, the picture is painting that he wants us to lie down in wide open spaces. For me, the, the idea of a green pasture is quite weird, okay? I don't know about you, but I don't go and lie down in fields that often, you know, and certainly if it did, it wouldn't be my idea of rest. Camping for me is not rest, it's probably suffering, but we, but God is wanting to paint this picture, or sorry, David is wanting to pick it paint this picture of a God who is making us to lie down in wide and open spaces, away from the, the tightness that we can often experience. And he wants us to bring, to bring us to a place that is wide and open and spacious, expansive, with lots of creativity, lots of potential. He wants us to enjoy his peace, and he wants us to enjoy his presence. He wants to give us living water, to quench our thirst with his love and his life. And not because it's going to be nice for us, but because it's necessary for us. The picture of a shepherd is a powerful one in this psalm. And the recently deceased Eugene Peterson, who wrote the message, also wrote another book where he mentioned in it that a farmer, he was referring to a shepherd, and he said about a shepherd, he said, a farmer is never in a hurry. And I love that. I love that picture of a farmer or a shepherd who is willing to spend time and stop and pause and go slower. And so as I was preparing this and thinking about this, I began to wonder if you are someone or if I am someone who prioritizes the wide open spaces. If I prioritize the green pastures, if I prioritize the mountainside or the mountaintop, 
the mountainside or the mountaintop. You see, when I was a young Christian, I, I used to lurch from spiritual high to spiritual high. You know, I wanted to seek an experience, you know, a kind of spiritual hit that would keep me going during the week and, you know, get me through the rough times. And I used to crave the youth weekend, you know, the youth weekend when I would hear lots of talks all at once and um, know more about God and feel more closer to him than ever and, like, promise to him I was never, ever going to sin again. And I would write those sins on a sheet of paper and I would kneel them to the cross at the front. That sounds really weird if you've just walked into church, by the way, but it happened. Okay. Or, or I craved the big event, you know, where there was lots of kind of loads of Christians in the same room or the same hall, and, and we would be singing songs like, Lord, I come to you. And, and we would be, uh, you know, led by the front from, from people who were really cool, and they could speak languages that I, I would understand, um, English, but, but, you know, speaking a way that I could understand it. And I would love that, and I would feel energized by it, and I would go out into the week, and I would think, you know, I'm going to be the greatest Christian that's ever lived this week, and I'm, I'm going to tell lots of people about Jesus. And then, and then a big summer camp came along, and I thought, brilliant, you know, because I'm going to recommit my life to God again for the 13th time. And I used to crave that, and I used to want, you know, seek this mountaintop experience with God. And believe me, he met me on the mountaintop. Time and time again, God and his grace and his mercy continue to meet, even though maybe my expectations weren't right. You know, he continued to meet me time and time again. But as I've tried to journey through the Christian life, I've realized that actually what I need to seek, I will still receive the mountaintop experience, whether I seek it or not, by the way. But what I, what I need to seek is the mountainside times where I can draw away from the crowd, the busyness, the intensity, the busyness of life, a, a time away from my thoughts and, and, and you know, where the world revolves around me and I and us and we and what I want and what I desire and I need to move away from that at times to discover the mountainside. I think Psalm 23 reminds us that our life in God is not just about experience but it's about encounter. You know, with Jesus, his priority was more the mountainside than the mountaintop. We can see that in how he led his disciples. He drew his disciples. Our previous series in this began with a statement that Jesus drew his disciples to the side of a mountain where he would teach them. And he knelt down with him or he sat down on their level and he taught them. He drew his disciples to listen to his words on the mountainside. And he himself withdrew from the crowds to seek intimacy with the Father. Someone has told me that if you read the Gospels, almost always Jesus is trying to escape a crowd. It seems that he's constantly trying to get away from the crowd to be with the twelve, and even away from the twelve to be with the three, his kind of inner core of disciples, and even away from the three to be alone with his Father. What direction is your life moving? What direction am I moving? Am I wanting to leave the place of prayer to, you know, to seek activity and doing stuff, and I'm even you know, the things that we're doing and we're just wanting to build it bigger and brighter? Or are we seeking intimacy with the Father? You know, God will give you, I believe, God will give you powerful moments up the mountain, powerful experiences of his presence. That, that will happen as you seek to follow Jesus. But the reason he gives you the mountaintop experiences are actually to equip you for the times when life gets tough. It's to equip you for the times when God seems more distant. The moments up the mountain are for ministry in the valley. And it's the mountainside we need to seek rather than the mountain top. 
So how are you seeking the mountainside in your life? How are you seeking the God of recreation and not just the God of chill out or rest? As Dave challenged us last week, are we learning to lie down? It's a question I read on Unpack on Friday and I I think I'll keep thinking about it. Um, Are we learning to lie down? The psalmist is painting a picture where God is not just in the green pastures or still waters, but he's leading us to them. So what is the green pasture, the greener pasture that God is wanting to lead you towards? Where is he wanting to lead you for restoration? The God of the immeasurably more has more for you. But it's not just found up the mountaintop. It's found in the mountainside and it's for the valley. He makes you He makes us lie down in green pastures. He leads us beside still waters. Secondly, um, I believe the psalm paints a picture of the God of presence and not just prosperity. And David's actually writing here from his first-hand experience, okay? He has has, um, obviously spent a lifetime or significant amount of time in greener pastures. He was a shepherd, and he has experienced the benefit of God's presence with him whenever he was lonely in the hills. He was a shepherd who spent a lot of times on his own or with sheep and not very many other humans, and he knew God's care of him. He had experienced God's care of him as he tended the sheep in the fields. There have been times where David was full of fear, and yet he understood God's presence with him. There have been times where David was lonely, And yet he met God's presence there. And from these experiences, David writes. You know, he's writing not just from the top of his head, but from the the experience and the wellspring of his life. And because he's experienced these in the past, he expects these things now. You, You know, I think like David, we should be mindful of how God has acted in the past. How God has acted to us in the past, and also how God has acted throughout the time of history. Because as we discover or remember is a better word, as we remember how God acted in the past, we can begin to discover and see how he wants to act in the present. In the present. So if you can think now of a time where you have known God with you in the past, just call that to your memory now. That, the memory of that and the truth of that, the experience of that and the truth of that, means that we can trust, that you can trust, that because God was with you then, he will be with you now. How do we know that? Because we see throughout the pages of the Bible that God is unchanging. And so the God that was with you then is with you now. And you see, throughout the Bible, God never promised prosperity to his people, but he always promised his presence. God doesn't guarantee success for his followers but he promises us security in him. Have a listen to this. You will be my people, and I will be your God. Exodus 6. I will never leave you or forsake you. Deuteronomy chapter 31. And surely I will be with you always, even to the very end of the age. Matthew 28. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Acts 1. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, Romans chapter 8. And in Revelation 21, he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. These are promises. They're promises that we can rely on. They're things about the past that we can 
um, look back and know that these are actual, not just more than promises, they're actual words and commitments that have been spoken from the mouth of God. They aren't just a nice thought to get you through a tough day. They are foundational truths that you can base your life on. You know, they're not just for fridge magnets or for flowery backgrounds or nice fonts or filters with sunsets. They are actual promises and they're biblical and they're reliable and they're trustworthy for every part of our lives. He is with you. He is in you. And greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Jesus didn't just come to die for you. Strange statement, okay? He didn't just come to die for you. He came to live in you. He's the God of presence, not just prosperity. And in crisis, I think what we need to know most is that he is present in it with us. I think what an anxious generation most needs is not a coping mechanism, but it's a non-anxious presence. There's a man called Edwin Friedman, and he coined this brilliant little phrase, a non-anxious presence. And for me, it's brilliantly captured in this story told of a ship and its crew in peril on the sea. Let me read it for you. In the engine room, the men were being tossed back and forth. And with each pitch in the sea, they became more convinced that they wouldn't make it through alive. One of the crew managed his way up to the bridge of the ship just to see if there was any chance of surviving. Several minutes later, he returned to his shipmates, and though the seas had grown no less angry, he reported to them that they were going to be fine. How can you know, they replied. I've been to the bridge, said the crewman, and I saw the captain's face, and he was smiling. In the midst of the tumultuous seas that exist in our lives, followers of Jesus can say that we have seen the face of the captain, and he is smiling. He's secure in his identity. He's not fearful of circumstances. He's not worried about tomorrow. His thoughts are good and his ways are pure. And in an anxious generation and in an anxious world, we need a non-anxious presence to live life alongside us and to navigate us through, to lead us to the greener pastures and to help us drink from the quiet waters or the still waters. And our God is that presence. The non-anxious present isn't just someone else in your life. He is the God that we follow. I recently heard John Dickinson say in a sermon that what we need most in life, I've quoted Dave and John in one talk. Um, I don't know what this says about who I'm listening to the most, but I recently heard John say in a sermon that what we need most in life isn't a map or a, or a plan, but a guide. And for me, again, this is the picture of Psalm 23. He is leading me. He is guiding me. He is making me lie down. And I love the words of a song, worship song called uh, Guardian, which wasn't written in the 90s. It was written after that. But uh, it says this, King of love and grace, my guardian, all my hopes and fears are in your hands. Where you go, I'll go. Show me the way. Every step I take, be now my guide. You go before me. You're there beside me. And if I wonder, love will find me. Goodness and mercy will always follow. You go before me, my guardian. He's our guardian. Going before us, standing beside us, bringing his presence wherever you will go this week and much further beyond. For Jesus' disciples, it was much more about being with Jesus than doing for him. And it's no different now. Jesus Jesus doesn't just want our hands. He doesn't just want us for the things that we'll do for him. 
he doesn't just want our hands to serve. He wants our hearts to surrender. He's the God of presence and not just prosperity. And lastly, and maybe a little bit quick, more quickly, finally, he's the God of comfort rather than complaint. See, it's interesting here in Psalm 23, many of David's Psalms are actually complaints. A lot of them are David spending time uh, complaining about things that are going on with his enemies or his life and, the thing, and his afflictions and all sorts of things. But in this psalm, this psalm is actually full of comfort. There's a reason this is read at a lot of funeral services uh, because it, com- it contains loads of comforting words about God. And David takes time to express his delight in God's goodness and his dependence upon him. I recently attended the funeral of a, of a good friend of mine, and uh, something that the minister said about my friend that day really struck, uh, stuck with me, and it said this. He said he had no time for first-world problems in a world with very real issues, and that summed up my friend really well, so I smiled at that. I thought it was absolutely brilliant, uh, rude down. I've been thinking about it um, often ever since. But it challenged me, if I'm honest, it challenged me as I reflected on my life because I thought how so often my life can be more full of complaints than the comforts of God. We do live in a complaints culture, don't we? If a product isn't good, we complain about it. When something goes wrong, we look for someone to blame. Well, there's got to be a leader or someone or company that's, that's to blame for that. If our customer experience wasn't satisfactory, then we tweet about it. And we're conditioned as, as people in this generation. We know our rights and and we are dissatisfied when those rights aren't met. You know, for me, it's, it's perfectly summed up in a little story that, um, or a little example where, uh, you know, if you went into McDonald's this evening on your way home, and uh, what, what you would expect is that you would be brought up to, you would walk up to the till and you would squint at the, you know, the, the text, or you probably know already what you want anyway, but uh, you would order your meal and you would, um, the, the woman would shout back, the woman or the guy would shout back uh, your order. Uh, you would stand in line, while, you would actually be pushed to the side while someone else comes up and orders your food. And you're like, I haven't got my food yet, but they're taking someone else's order. Why is this? And you would wait and then you would get your tray and your little plastic tray and there's no cutlery. And so you just got to eat it with your hands. So you take it to your table, your table's fixed and you're not allowed to move your table. And so you can't, for me, you can't pull the seat closer or anything like that in case you go like riot with or something, it's fixed down, and, and basically the only thing you would complain about at McDonald's on the way home, the only thing you would complain about is if you had to wait too long for your burger, because that's the contract, that's the expectation that you have. The expectation you have is that this place will feed me as quickly as I can. Now, maybe instead of going to McDonald's tomorrow evening, you'll decide to take someone very special to a restaurant. Can you imagine walking into that restaurant and they say something to you like, you know what, we're not going to give you out menus, but we've got the menu up here, okay, if you could just squint, that would be brilliant. And actually, you know what, if you could come up and give us your order whenever you're ready, that would be really good. And actually, with no cutlery, we're cutting back, so with no cutlery, so if you could just, uh, uh, you know, just use your fingers, that'll be fine, use your hands, that'll be great. And actually, you know what, we need this table back in 20 minutes, so is, is that okay? You would complain. And the reason you would complain is because the contract is broken. Your expectations haven't been met. So what's your expectations? What's your expectations when it comes to God? What's your expectations for what he will do in your life? Because if your expectation of God is what he will do for you, 
then when that's not met, you will complain. If your expectation is that everything's going to go really, really well, whenever that doesn't happen and it won't, then you will complain to God. But if your expectation is what God is going to do in you and what he might do through you, then that's really different. God is wanting to bring his comfort. He is wanting to be comforting. He's he's wanting to bring a culture of comfort to your soul. That's the expectation we would have. Not that we would be comfortable, but that we would know comfort. You know, I need, if I'm honest, I need to stop trying to squeeze, somehow try and squeeze and fit Jesus into my life and start building my life around Jesus. He's the foundation stone. He's the cornerstone. He's wanting to lead me, not the other way around. And as I read the Bible, those most aware of their need of Jesus were the ones most welcomed by the Savior. So how aware of you, sorry, how aware are you of your need of Jesus? How aware are you of your need for Jesus? Let's be people who are aware not just of our rights, but are aware of our, and aren't just aware of our needs, but are aware of our shortcomings, are aware of our failures just as much as you're aware of about the failures of others. We could do that, can't we? You know, we know all about other people's feelings and we talk about other people's feelings and we complain about other people's feelings. But before rushing the complaint, how about we seek the comfort of the Savior in our life, in our lives? That's me near enough done. And that's kind of where we're going to land it today. These three principles that we can trust and rely on about God wanting to recreate you and not just wanting to give you a little bit of rest for now. About God wanting to remind us of his presence and not just that everything will go well and be you know, prosperous in our lives. And also God who want, the God who wants to comfort us in the midst of our complaints. And I suppose as I, I finish today, I, I want to give us an opportunity a moment where we can actually be those people who acknowledge that we often live from fear rather than God's comfort. A moment for us to acknowledge that we are aware of our need of God's leading and correction in our life. An opportunity for us to say, you know what, I need to be led to that quiet water. I need to be led towards that greener pasture. Because right now I've been, I've been grabbing for the mountaintop rather than the mountainside. Right now I've been trying to tackle the issues of my life on my own and ignoring the, the presence of God, the comfort of God, and the recreation of God around me. You know, I don't, I don't know who you are or where, sorry, where you are in your life right now, but the fact that you're still breathing tells me that God is not finished with you yet. He has a work to do, not just through you, but he's a work to do in you. And he wants to not just send us to a different place, he wants to lead us to a greener pasture. And the greener pasture involves his presence, it involves his comfort, and it involves him restoring and recreating you.
So I'm going to pray in a moment. But I just think this, so much of this is about us acknowledging our need and weakness rather than actually us, you know, triumphing and saying we're really strong. You know, so much I've been learning recently that actually following Jesus is much more about me acknowledging my weakness. It's, it's about me saying I am weak. I am weak, but he is strong. And so I want to just give you an opportunity or a moment for you to simply stand where you are. And it's not clever. It's not a kind of clever response or anything like that, but it just gives us an opportunity for you to say, this sums me up today. I do live in fear or anxiety, and I simply need God to not just fix me, but to lead me to place um, where he can bring me his presence and his comfort. And we're simply going to pray for you. That's literally all that's going to happen. Where do you need his recreation? How will you seek his presence? And where do you need his comfort? And so if you want to acknowledge that you often live from your fear more than God's comfort, I want to simply ask you to stand where you are and we're going to pray for you to acknowledge your need of him. Dave and Joy, come on ahead. Uh, to acknowledge your need of him and then we're going to try to gather around and pray. So, um, yeah, I'm going to leave a moment. If that's you, I'd love you to stand and I'll pray. And maybe if that's, if there's someone beside you who's um, standing, I'd love to invite you just to gather close around them. And maybe why don't someone around the person pray for them uh, rather than me? I don't pray any secret words or magic words. So why don't we just gather around people who are standing, look around, gather around them. And why don't someone just in that group pray for them before we do? So let's minister to each other. <laughs> 